because I was meant to preach it two weeks ago, and uh, I probably started preparing two weeks before that. So I've had six weeks to, to marinate myself in the book of Revelation, which included reading it in one sitting, which I recommend, and, and really just trying to understand this very, very complicated book. And I think as Christians, we often steer clear of the book of Revelation simply because it is so difficult to understand. And even people that have dedicated their lives to studying the book of Revelation still aren't really sure on, about some of its parts. So I think this is a book that Christians steer, steer clear of. But yet it is a, it's the only book in the Bible that has a blessing for those that, that take it to heart. We said, blessed is the one who reads the words of this revelation, this prophecy. It also at the end contains a curse. And I warn anybody who hears the words of this prophecy and doesn't take it to heart, you're in big trouble. So very interesting that this is the only book of the Bible that has a blessing for those that that take it seriously and a curse for those that don't. It's also a book that has found its way into popular culture. I mean, who hasn't heard about the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Perhaps some of you. But, but that, that's a theme that's it's found its way into to popular culture. The, the second death, the mark of the beast, the 666. The Antichrist, the false prophet, Armageddon, the millennium, the rapture, the great white throne judgment, the great prostitute, the fall of Babylon, the new Jerusalem. I mean, these are all themes and ideas that can give people sleepless nights. As Christians, we can make reference to these things as well, but often we have widely different understandings of what these things may mean. Let's talk about people's attitudes to the book of Revelation. As I've hinted in my introduction, some people don't enjoy this book. They find it too controversial. For some, it leads to amazing speculation. You know, thousands of books have been written supposedly explaining the meaning of this book. Uh, you know, those charts that show when everything's going to happen and who is doing what as history unfolds. Some people think this book is too violent or they can't see the point of it. But it is a wonderful book and it has much to say to us. So, let me just do a, a quick fly through the book of Revelation, and then we'll get stuck into some of the more, more meaty parts. And I know you've already had two sermons uh, in the series, but the book starts with, with John. We're not sure, in fact, if it is the Apostle John, it could be another John. It doesn't <clears throat> give any more information than simply John. But he's on the island of Patmos. There you can see Patmos. It's a little island uh, between Turkey and Greece, and John is obviously there, and he's worshiping God, and he's given this amazing vision, and uh, he sees Jesus, and he's told to write down 
all that he, he sees and, and hears. And you know when you've had a dream, everything kind of mushes a bit together and the time frame of a dream can be out of sync and things happen in dreams that could never happen in real life. You know, there can be strange creatures that look funny, that change, and it's almost as though that's the kind of revelatory experience that this John has on the Isle of Patmos. And when he writes it down, it's like someone has recorded it. And he's told to, to write down what Jesus says. And Jesus dictates seven different letters that are to go to the churches named there. Churches in, in Asia Minor. And then there is this awesome vision of Jesus. And we have a description of Jesus. And we're told that his head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like fire, his feet like bronze burning in a furnace, and his voice sounded like a river. And in his hand, he's holding these seven churches. And out of his, out of his mouth, is a sharp, double-edged sword. And we know it's Jesus because he says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And then in Revelation chapter 4, and we've already had readings, there's a description of worship in heaven. And it's great to read about the worship in heaven and to compare what we call worship today with what's going on up there. And we'll, we find out that what's going on up there is all about, it's focused on the Lord and His attributes. And people are in, in awe of God. You are worthy, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And then in chapter 7 also, there's that picture of the great multitude worshiping before the throne, and they're shouting out, salvation belongs to the Lord. And wasn't it great that we sang that this morning? And this is where the straightforward part of the book of Revelation comes to an end. Now we sort of get into the complicated stuff from, from chapter 5. So most sermons you hear on the book of Revelation cover chapters 1 to 5. There's something going on in heaven at this point. They're looking for somebody special because they have a scroll that has got seven seals on it, seven wax seals with some kind of imprint. Obviously, that's not the security system of heaven. It's a picture for us of something that is being withheld. And they're looking for someone who can open the scroll. And they're not quite getting panicky, but the angels are going around. Who can open this the scroll with seven seals on it. Who is worthy? Woo! Wow. Who is worthy to, to open the soul, the scroll? Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And, and I wept and I wept because there's no one who was found who could open the scroll. 
And you all know what's going to happen next, don't you? Someone has a bright idea. You don't have to cry because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. He is able to open the scroll. And John says, then I looked and I, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. That's Jesus standing in the center of the throne because he is an the object of their worship, a lamb looking as though it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he came and took the scroll from him who sits on the throne. And then in the book of Revelation, we discover each time one of the the seals is broken. There are events that happen here on earth. And so there's a direct relationship and correlation between what Jesus is doing in heaven with that scroll. As he removes one of the seals, things start to happen down here. And the first four of the seals release what are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. By the way, this really is a book that you need to, <laughs> to study carefully to, to get the message and, and to study it in, in one go, as it were. So in Revelation chapter 6, John describes and he says, I was watching the Lamb open the first of the seven seals. And there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. And he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. <coughs> this is not Jesus. This is in all likelihood the Antichrist who's now going out with a position of authority to, to cause havoc in the world. So that's what happens when the first seal is broken. In verse 3, the Lamb opens the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, come, and another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. And he was given a large sword. Genocide happening. People killing each other. This is because Jesus has broken the seventh seal. And now here on earth are manifestations. What's the third seal? Well, in verse 5, the Lamb opens the third seal. Now there is a black horse released. And its rider has a pair of scales. And he stands for famine. And trouble in the world. And there's a description there of what food's going to cost once this horse rushes out. In verse 7, there is the fourth seal. He's on a, this time it is a pale horse. And its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. 
they were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and with wild animals. So friends, this is hectic stuff, and these are only the first four seals that are broken. The first horseman likely refers to the Antichrist, who will have authority to conquer those who oppose him. The Antichrist, by the way, in the Greek language, anti doesn't mean to be against. It means to be instead of. And so the, the Antichrist will be a kind of Messiah figure. I've come to rescue you, world. Follow me. He's going to take the place of Christ and pretend to be the Savior, pretend to be the one with all the answers. As I mentioned, the second horseman refers to terrible warfare. The third horseman to famine. And the fourth is a symbol of, of devastation. What do these things teach us about the character and nature of God? Because many of us have the view that, that God only does nice things. What are we to make of a, a Jesus who's, who's opening scrolls that result in these horsemen and the like? going into the world and, and causing havoc. It reminds me of that Old Testament verse in Isaiah 45 where the Lord tells us, I am the one that brings prosperity and creates disaster. Many of us love the fact that God brings peace and prosperity, but do we understand there are also times when God creates disaster? And in the book of Revelation, we see God pouring out His wrath on humankind. We don't have time to go through verse by verse what each of the, the seven seals are. But they're not just seven seals on a scroll. There are seven trumpets that get blown by angels in the book of Revelation. And each time an angel blows a trumpet, something goes down here on planet Earth. But they're not just seven seals and seven trumpets. They're also seven bowls of wrath. I was trying to understand, what are these bowls of wrath? Remember in the old days in warfare when people would be besieging a city and someone would bring along a pan of oil and kind of tip it on the soldiers trying to climb up the wall, you know, as a way of stopping them climbing up the wall. You know, they're pouring out a bowl of, of, of burning tar or oil. Perhaps that's a picture of what a bowl of wrath looks like. So they're the seven seals, and if you study the middle chapters of the book of Revelation, you'll discover that the seven seals stands for the Antichrist and militarism, conflict on the earth, famine, disease and epidemics is the fifth seal. There's the persecution of martyrs. There are cosmic unheavals. There's the sealing of the 144,000, which we're not going to get into. And the final seventh seal results in an earthquake 
so severe, there's never been one like it. What are the seven trumpets? Well, there's a description of the scorched earth. For those of us that love nature and ecology, the book of Revelation's got bad news for us. Humanity is going to, to damage and continue to, to, to scorch the earth with polluted seas are described there. Which was interesting because when this book was written, I mean, polluted seas, they probably thought the seas went on forever and ever. That could never happen. Contaminated water, reduced sunlight. They're these funny locusts with the power to hurt for five months, which when I was growing up was described as attack helicopters. Which is quite interesting if you read that description. If, imagine you're a first century person and you've got to describe a modern attack helicopter. And the description is amazing. It's, it's this flying thing that all they can say, it's like a big locust that makes a hang of a noise and it's got the power to shoot fire out of it. I mean, well, that's an attack helicopter, is it not? But I'm not saying that's the interpretation. I'm just saying that's the speculation. And when I read it even a while ago, I thought, my goodness. I mean, if you're a first century person, how else would you describe something like that? Again, after the seven trumpets, there's a massive earthquake. What are the seven bowls of wrath? Whoa. An angel pours out the bowls of wrath and people get boils. It's a little like the plagues of Egypt getting repeated. And the plagues of Egypt symbolized an attack on the gods of Egypt. And now we see in the book of Revelation these bowls resulting in plagues. Blood in the sea instead of in the Nile. Blood from springs burning by the sun. That could get worse. Bigger holes in the ozone. Darkness, the battle of Armageddon, and again, a severe earthquake. So if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you, you have to make sense of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of wrath, because that takes up a lot of chapters. And the question is, are these simultaneous events? In other words, is the seal, the first trumpet, and the first bowl of wrath, is that the same thing? I don't think so. Are they consecutive? In other words, we first have the seven seals, then the seven trumpets, then the seven bowls of wrath. Again, I, I don't think so. That would what cons consecutive would look like. In all likelihood, I think this is the best way to, to break it up. There is a, an intensification of these things. And you'll remember that Jesus spoke about labor pains as being a description of the end times. And with labor, the, the contractions get, get closer together and more severe. There is a building in intensity, and we see that here. And it would appear that there's first the seals, then the trumpets, then the bowls. But boom, number seven is a description of one and the same event, this great earthquake. So I hope this little description is, is helpful for you. Also, at some point, there is a false prophet that appears, a beast People have the mark of the beast. Again, we don't want to get too much into that. 
And then, remember, we're still doing the overview, this little overview. The, the, the high point in the book of Revelation is obviously chapter 19, because this is where Jesus Christ arrives. And in Revelation 19, we read John getting the vision out. I saw heaven standing open, and there was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Would that be his own blood symbolizing his death for us? Or is that the blood of those he's making war against? And on him is written... His name is the Word of God. And on his thigh, someone said the other day, it's like a tattoo on his thigh. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus and his glorious return. So that's pretty much what the book of Revelation is all about. Letters to the churches, seals, trumpets, bowls, Antichrist, beast, few other things, return of Christ, may or may not have a thousand year reign on the earth, may or may not have a rapture, return of Christ, new heavens and a new earth. When it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation, how should we interpret this book? Here's a great quote from Chesterton. He wrote this, Though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. He's basically saying that John wrote a lot of amazing stuff, but wow, the people that commentated came up with even more crazy ideas. Some thoughts about interpreting the book of Revelation. The chapter divisions are very unhelpful because often we start to read from the beginning of a chapter and we think, oh, let's start to read from the beginning of a chapter. We've missed what, what's led up to that chapter. This is a book that needs its whole context. You have to understand the Old Testament. There are many allusions to the book of Daniel particularly. You need to understand history. Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, we, we need to understand the, the siege of Jerusalem leading up to AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem. You have to have a grasp of the persecution that was, was going on. Why is this such a complicated book? I think, firstly, because of the style in which it was written. It, it is like a dream. There's, there's things that are illogical. You know, there's, there's a lamb, but he's a person, and he's got a sword, but he's wearing a... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really make sense. So somehow you've got to get your mind around that and, and work with it. The time sequence of the book of Revelation is all over the show. You know, it's not neatly laid out for us. You've got to work out, well, where do these events fit? There's a lot of repetition, and that can also get confusing and even tedious. 
<laughs> because of the persecution that the Christians were under, they couldn't say, you know, this Roman government is really terrible. They could not say that. So they would refer to the Roman government as Babylon. Because Babylon, for God's people, has always been that symbol of oppression. Because that's where the Jews were exiled to, to Babylon. So when you wanted to talk about the bad guys, you wouldn't say Rome. You would say Babylon. We even know that from, from, from Peter's book, where he, he refers in one of his letters. And sometimes things have multiple meanings and fulfillment. So this is also very confusing. We call this prophetic telescoping. Oh, let me align myself with the picture. The, the prophet looks and as he sees things, he sees different events happening. But because of his linear perspective, for him, he, he's not quite sure of the depth. And so he describes events as all happening at the same time. But they're spread out in time. We, we know this refers to the day of the Lord. And I preached a sermon in the evening a couple of months back about the day of the Lord. How there were many days of the Lord leading up still to the ultimate day of the Lord. And so there are things that have primary and secondary fulfillments, foreshadowings and final fulfillments. That's an important principle. So what are the four main approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation? This is the part you've all been waiting for. <coughs> well, there are four views. The f because we're not the first people that have ever wondered how to interpret the book of Revelation. <laughs> people have been trying to understand this book for 2,000 years. And there are four main ways. And each of the four main ways somehow have little tweaks and different versions within that predominant way. And we're not going to do a show of hands at the end of the four views, as interesting as that might be. The first view is the, the preterist view, who say, no, this is a book all about the first century. This is not a book about the EU and Russia and China and the return of Christ. This is a book about people living in the first century, battling persecution, and Jesus is revealed to them to encourage them and to sustain them. The historicists say, no, 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 no. There's way more to this book than the stuff that went down in the first century. This is a book that covers, yes, the first century, but, but all of history until Jesus returns. Then there are the futurists that say, no, 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 forget this first century stuff. This is a book from chapter 5 onwards. This is all about that short period of time before Jesus comes back. That, that five-year period before the return of Jesus. That's when this stuff is going to go down. And the idealists say, just chill out, guys. This is just a very vague book about the triumph of good over evil. 
They're, they're general principles and truths that are kind of true all the time. So those are the four views. If we go into them a little bit more carefully, you, you get two types of preterists. By the way, I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> it, it comes from, yeah. you get partial preterists and full preterists. So the full preterists are like everything described in the book of Revelation happened kind of in the first century. The great tribulation refers to the siege of Jerusalem. In AD, 60, in AD 68, culminating in, in its fall. And so when John writes about when you see, hear rumors of war, when you see the Roman troops arriving, if you're in the field, you must flee. The full preterists would say everything is fulfilled in that first century. The partial preterists would say only some things were. And there's Peter's reference, where even in Peter's letter, he refers in verse 13 to Babylon. Here's the historicists, how they take even the letters to the seven churches, and they say, no, that refers to all of history. The church of Ephesus, that refers to the apostolic age. The church of Smyrna, to Roman persecution. And they say, we're living today in the, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. The futurists, I was thinking to myself, you know, this is the million-dollar question. How do, how do we interpret the book of Revelation? And then I realized that, of course, Tim LaHaye has probably made a million dollars with the wrong answer. So, so it's the million-dollar question whether you get it right or wrong. But the Left Behind series uses the, the, the final few days, the futurist view. And the idealists look at a symbolic view. So, so in a brief then, when you ask different people, what, what events do they cover? The Preterist, first few centuries. Historicists from year naught to the return of Christ. Futurists, just mainly the end bit. Idealists, always true. I hope you found that helpful. Just some final thoughts on the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven, seven bowls of wrath. I need a comment probably on, on which is the correct view, right? <laughs> the problem is no one size fits all. That each of those four views actually does have some merit at some point, which is why godly people hold to all four of those positions. So the trick really is to know when should you be a futurist, when should you be a preterist, when do you need to be a historicist? Because I think different parts of the revelation actually lend themselves to that framework of interpretation. There really were actual churches. I don't believe in that, that church age concept. But more about that next week, perhaps. 
As we close, do you think the world is going to get better or worse as time goes by? Worse, okay, worse. I was having a chat to a, a young parent the other day who was most encouraged when I shared with him, I thought in many ways the world is getting better. In many ways we do have a better world today than the one we grew up in. But I think big picture, I would need to agree that I think things are going to get worse. And we're seeing a tremendous exponential heading in that direction as people lose respect for each other, as, as there are more and more wars happening, even in our modern age. I mean, if it's not bird flu is back, I mean, there's water shortage in Cape Town. I mean, things, things are changing in this world. And Jesus said, will he find faith on earth when he returns? In Matthew 24, Jesus describes again the, the things described by the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls of wrath. He talks about how nation is going to rise against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes and these are just the beginnings of birth pains there's going to be persecution of christians jesus said the love of most is going to grow cold because of the hard times that we're going to go into i think the book of revelation is written partly to warn christians to prepare them for the difficult future awaits. 2 Timothy 3 talks about there will be terrible times in the last days. And so the book of Revelation doesn't stand alone in describing the hardships and the wars and the famines that will still happen. Let me just jump to something interesting here. In... in Mark 13, uh, Jesus talks about the abomination that causes desolation. And this is actually a quote from Daniel and, in, and originally referred, the first fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy was when Antiochus Epiphanes IV um, conquered Jerusalem and actually sacrificed a pig on the altar. And this is, was well-known history for the Jews. And when Jesus referred again to a similar event going to happen, perhaps it happened in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But let me close with, with this thought because we need to wrap up. Why is God doing this? Why is the world going to get worse before it gets better? Before we have a new heaven and a new earth, a perfect world? What is the key message of the book of Revelation? I believe it is this. Rev, the book of Revelation describes the outpouring of God's wrath on humanity on this planet. That's fundamentally what the book of Revelation is about. It is about God executing judgment on rebellious humanity in the hope that they would turn to Him. God always executes judgment. He did it on the, the people at the Tower of Babel. 
and secular society has rebuilt their Babel. It's referred to as Babylon in the book of Revelation. And all of these plagues, all of these troubles, it's God executing His judgment. It is a warning to us. It is a giving over humanity to what they want to do, to how they want to live their lives without God. And God is going to show us where that gets us. The book of Revelation is the fulfillment and the outworking of what Paul wrote in Romans 1 when he said, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness. It's what Jesus spoke about in John 3, where it talks about the people that don't believe in Jesus. The wrath of God abides on them. Why is God bringing about these horsemen, these tragedies, these horrible things? Revelation 9 describes a third of mankind being killed by plagues. You know the Black Death is back, eh? <laughs> Apparently the World Health Organization puts South Africa on watch. But there are going to be plagues that will return and, and people being killed. And we're told the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, which were God's judgment, they still did not repent. Verse 21, nor did they repent of murder and magic arts and sexual immorality. Revelation again talks about how the angel pours out his bowl and the sun was given great power to scorch the people and they were seared by the intense heat, and they too cursed the name of God, who had control over the plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify God. Men gnawed their tongues in agony, verse 10. They cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. And so it goes on, and the book ends, and we'll end here today with chapter 18. They shout, yay, Babylon is fallen. Why has Babylon fallen? Because God has judged her. She will be consumed for fire, for mighty is the Lord who judges her. And why has God judges her? Rejoice, heaven, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she has treated you. So the good guys, we win in the end. <laughs> I hope you're going to come back next week because next week, we're going to look at the Antichrist and the false prophet, the battle of Armageddon, the rapture, how Christ is going to return, whether or not there will be a millennium, and the great judgment before the white throne. I can't wait for next Sunday. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a very disturbing book. Chapter after chapter of Horrible things happening to this planet that we love, our home, Lord. 
But we see it's not just random events unfolding, but it is you revealing your wrath. It is you executing judgment, sometimes directly, at other times indirectly through allowing people to reap what they have sown. Thank you for the warnings of this book. Help us to take them to heart. But thank you, Lord, that it has a wonderful ending. That Jesus Christ is going to return and be victorious. And that one day you're going to create a perfect new heavens and a new earth for us to inhabit. So we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Wrap up this chapter of history, Lord. May your kingdom come. And we will always give you all the honor and praise and worship. All God's people said, Amen. Our service is over. Let's go through and have some coffee and enjoy some fellowship.